Good morning. My name is Ben Bostaff, and I serve as one of the elders here at West Classic Chapel. As was mentioned before, Pastor Joe is currently on vacation. He's uh, in Florida celebrating his father's 90th birthday. Uh, please keep him in your prayers that God will bless his time with family, but also grant him traveling mercies as he will soon be coming back to Minnesota. Our text this morning comes from Mark 14, 27 through 31. It can be found on page 720 in the Seat Bible. We have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, and now we have worked all the way up to uh, the middle of Mark chapter 14. Again, Mark 14, 27 through 31, it reads, You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, Even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. Lord Father God, we, we come before you. We want to thank you for today. It is a gift from you. Each moment of each day is a gift from you. We also want to thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on Calvary. We want to thank you for the sacrifice that he made, that he paid for the sins of the world, that those who believe in him as their Lord and Savior can be forgiven of their sins and saved. Please help us this morning, Lord, as we learn from your word. Please help us as we, uh, as we d- dissect and we dive in, Lord Father, that you would give us understanding and that you would be glorified. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As most of you know, I'm married to my gorgeous wife, Erica. We actually just celebrated our 10th anniversary about a week and a half ago. We have three beautiful children. We have Emerald, Brielle, and Bruce. And we are also expecting our fourth child shortly. I like to think I know the people that are closest to me really well. For example, if it was my wife, her choice would be something chocolate. If it was Brielle, it would be something green or blue or sometimes both. If it was Bruce, it would be whatever is mostly close related to food. For the new kid that's on the way, well, I haven't learned that one yet. We'll get there. But with emerald, it would be whatever is pink, 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 and more pink. Emerald has this pair of cowboy girl, cowgirl boots that are pink, and I cannot tell you the number of times we're getting ready to leave Sunday morning to go to church, and there are tears because she has to wear black, brown, or white shoes that go with her outfit. When we moved into our new house about a year and a half ago, we painted the girl's room, and we let Emerald pick the color of paint. Of course, she picked pink. The actual name of the paint was called Dreams Come True. And after I got, yeah, isn't that great? It's wonderful. After I got done painting the room and she saw the finished product, it was like her dreams did come true. It's like a Disney princess story all wrapped into one. Actually, the other week, I gave her the choice of two suckers. They were both pink. We had watermelon and we had pink lemonade. Can you guess which one she picked? Okay, I can. She picked pink lemonade. Why? Because pink is in the name, and the wrapper on the outside was more pink than the pink watermelon wrapper. If you want to make emerald happy, just make sure you include pink. In a quick overview of our text, Jesus tells his disciples that he will be killed. They will all abandon him. Peter says, not a chance. 
Christ then restates himself directly to Peter, gives Peter specific details about what Peter's involvement will be. Peter again says, no chance, not going to happen. And all the other disciples say the same thing. How well do you think Jesus knew his disciples? He's just spent the last three and a half years of ministry pouring into these 12 guys. We have gone through the book of Mark. We're almost halfway through chapter 14, okay? Um, And there are two chapters after this one. We're about 90% of the way through this gospel, and it is all about Jesus. And guess what? The disciples are right there beside him. Back in chapter 1, we meet Peter when he was fishing for fish, and Christ teaches him to fish for men. The disciples were there when Christ was teaching the masses, and the disciples were there when Christ was just teaching them. These guys left their home, their jobs, and many other things that we would not even consider doing without. These guys were all in, and Christ knew them very well. Our first point, Jesus' words. Jesus and his disciples finished the Passover meal, in this case the Last Supper, where Christ gives symbolic representation with bread and wine of what he is about to do by dying on the cross. He has just finished giving us this picture of agape love, the love that God has for us. In verse 27, Christ is quoting from the Old Testament from Zechariah 13. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and all the sheep will be scattered. Christ is saying this Old Testament prophecy is about to be fulfilled. Christ is telling his disciples that he will be killed and they will abandon him, not because he knows them so well. It is because Jesus fully knows his purpose, why he is here on the earth. It is because Jesus is God. It is because Jesus is fully God and fully man. John 1, 1 through 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. This is a clear statement that Christ is God. So whatever God is, Christ is. Why does this make a difference? Well, because God is omniscient. In my introduction, I stated that I knew my family well and that Christ knew his disciples well. But both concepts of knowing someone or something well by experience or time or effort put in, it falls drastically and incomparably short when compared with the omniscience of God. Omniscience means all-knowing. Well, what does that really mean? Well, if we break it down, we have two words that make up omniscience. They are omni and science. Again, the word is spelled omniscience, but it's pronounced omniscience. Omni means all. Not most, not the majority, or some, or a few, or two-thirds, or three-fourths, or 99.9%. It means everything entirely. No exceptions, no exclusions, no conditions, terms, fine print, or the like. 100% inclusive. All means all. Hey, but Ben, wait a minute. What about this? No, no, let me stop your thought process right there. All means all. Now that we've fully covered omni, what does science mean? Science means knowledge. So all knowledge. All things that can be known are known. What is known to God? Everything. We are not all-knowing. We are constantly learning, discovering, uncovering, um, thinking, uh, etc. It just, it goes on and on. This does not mean just because man does not know something that it is unknown or unknowable. God knows. I do not know the preferences of my child that hasn't been born yet, but God does. God knew what their preferences were from the beginning. Now there's a concept. Before the beginning... Let that sink in for a second. 
My father-in-law's favorite verse is Genesis 1-1-A. In the beginning, God. So here is God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit hanging out before the beginning. Before all was created, we have the Trinity, who always has been, always is, and always will be. Technically, there was no before, because there had not been a beginning. Time had not been created yet, and the word before is a constraint of time. So there was really no concept or an idea of before. But we are finite beings, and we lack the understanding and the vocabulary to grasp this concept. God existed in eternity before time was created. Often when we think of eternity, if we think of the end of the world, we think of after revelation. But what was eternity like prior to the time of time being created? This is a massive concept we cannot wrap our minds around. If you haven't caught on, I'm trying to explain how big God is and how small we are. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Even in eternity, before creation, God knew he was going to create us. He knew we were going to choose sin, and he knew he was going to have to send his only son to die for us. I don't know about you, but if I created something for a specific purpose, and I knew that there was going to be a problem with it, I probably would not sacrifice my only son to fix the problem. I'd probably just scrap the thing and start over. In fact, if I knew if I was going to create something and I knew it was going to be in this type of situation, I probably wouldn't have created it at all. I would have just said, well, forget that idea. Let's move on to the next one. How true is the first verse of this song? How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. God knows all things. Christ knew that this Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah was being fulfilled. Christ continues in verse 28 to tell the disciples what he's going to do after he has risen. He's going to go ahead of them into Galilee. Why is this important? How many people do you know that can tell you exactly what's going to happen in the future? Some of us might have our schedules put together for the next week or two, but this is not what Christ is doing. Remember the prophecy from verse 27. Christ is saying, I'm going to be killed. And then in verse 28, he says, he will rise from the dead and go ahead of his disciples into Galilee. Let's pretend Christ has his daily planner out in front of him. Well, let's see. Thursday, last meal and hoorah with the boys. Friday night, lots of blood, pain, suffering, and dying for the world. Saturday, free space. Sunday, rise from the dead, leave the tomb, go to Galilee. In Matthew 28, women show up at the empty tomb, and they see an angel who tells them that Christ is risen, and they should go tell the disciples to go to Galilee and meet up with Christ. While these women are on their way to meet the disciples, they run into Jesus. And Jesus tells them the same thing. Tell the disciples to go to Galilee so they can meet up with me. So the disciples go to Galilee, and guess what? They met up with Jesus. Wouldn't it just been easier to go to Galilee like Jesus said way back in Mark 14, verse 28, before he died? Wouldn't it be just easier to trust Christ? Many times in the New Testament, Christ prophesied about his death and resurrection. We can find the accounts in all four Gospels. Some of the references are John 2.19, Mark 8.31, Matthew 17.22-23, Matthew 20.17-19, Luke 9.22. These are not the only places where Christ says something and it happens. 
He curses a fig tree and it withers. He tells the blind to receive their sight. He tells the lame to get up and walk. He tells the dead to rise and come back to life. He tells his disciples where to fish. When Christ says something, it can be trusted. When Christ says something, it can be trusted because it's going to happen. Christ is all-knowing. He has just told his disciples that they will all fall away, that they will disown him, that they are going to go and hide at his utmost time of need. So this begs a question. Did they really have a choice to disown him or not? Let me give you another example. Those of you who are familiar with the movie The Matrix probably know this scene. The main character, Neo, is going to visit another character uh, whose name is Oracle. And this, uh, in this movie, the Oracle is supposed to know everything. For those of you who missed the movie, please let me set the scene for you. Neo walks into the kitchen and the Oracle is baking cookies. And here's the dialogue that follows. Oracle, I'd ask you to sit down, but you're not going to anyways. And don't worry about the vase. Neo, what vase? And as he says that, he kind of turns to the side and brushes this vase and it hits the floor and shatters into a bunch of pieces. Oracle, that vase. And Neo goes, oh, I'm sorry. Oracle said, I said, don't worry about it. I'll get one of my students to fix it. Neo, how did you know? Oracle, what's really going to bake your noodle is later on is would you still have broken it if I didn't say anything? So here we have an all-knowing God. He instantly and always knows what is happening, what has happened, and what is going to happen. And there is no lag time or buffering. He knows each moment of each day for the rest of our lives and what it's going to be. He knows the choices that we are all going to make, good, bad, and indifferent. Because he knows, does this negate choice? If choice is taken away from us, this is called fatalism. This is not God, nor nor is that what God's word tells us. Ravi Zachariah, who is a brilliant apologist, has been asked this question, uh, or several versions of it. Let me sum up his answer. The two greatest commandments are to love God and love others. We find uh, Jesus saying this in Mark 12, 30 and 31. If we are to love God and love others, we also have to have the choice not to love. Let me say that again. If we are to love God and love others, we also have to have the choice not to love. God created us for his glory. If we were just automatons, we would have never sinned. God would have said something, and we would have responded, yes, sir, and done it more perfectly than we would have ever done before. If we did not have choice, only programmed responses, any mistakes that we made, i.e. sin, those mistakes would be the responsibility of our creator, God. But God is perfect. God is holy. God is righteous. God is without sin. God does not make mistakes. He gives us free will, and he gave it to us even though he knew we were going to sin. That Christ was going to have to die and pay the penalty of death for our sin to save us. We are responsible for our own choices. God has given us free will. Even though Christ told his disciples they would abandon him, they each still had that choice to make. Our second point, Peter's folly. Peter is one of the 12 disciples, just giving you a little background here. He is uh, referred to what is called the inner three, uh, which are the three disciples that were most close to Christ, which is Peter, James, and John. We know that Peter is married uh, because we read in Matthew 8 that uh, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. 
I also feel a little bit of a personal kinship with Peter um, because, one, he's a very much type A personality, which we see all throughout the gospel. But we can reasonably believe that he was a big, strong guy. How do I arrive at this conclusion? Well, in John 21, 11, it tells us about the miraculous catch. In verse 11, it says, Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the nets were not torn. How heavy is a large fish? Two pounds? Three pounds? Five pounds? Whatever their weight, there was some amazement that the net was not damaged. And it said that Peter dragged this ashore. Peter was a big dude. Anytime we see Peter in picture, excuse me, every time we see Peter is a picture of man as man. When we see Peter, we are looking into the mirror. We should see ourselves. If you, yourself, if you don't see yourself when you look at Peter, don't worry, I got you covered too. We'll get to that. Our parents always told us we should learn from the errors of others. It hurts less than making our own mistakes, and it is often less expensive. Peter has many errors. As we examine Peter, starting with myself, I want us to put ourselves in his place. So in verse 27, Christ is stating the prophecy from Zechariah is going to be fulfilled by him dying and the disciples scattering. And as we, in verse 29, we read that Peter speaks out of turn, Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Peter takes his eyes off Christ. Peter was not listening. Verse 27 is not where Christ stopped. In verse 28, as we read, Christ said he's going to rise. But Peter takes his eyes off Christ and puts them on himself. He knows the exact scripture that Christ is quoting. He knows exactly what Jesus meant when he quoted it. Peter did not want to believe that particular, part, that particular scripture in that moment because it did not line up with his personal view. I am Peter. I will never fall away. Peter's personal view did not make the scripture any less true. Remember the scriptures we listed early from the four Gospels talking about Jesus when he was prophesying his own death? Peter knew Jesus had to die because Jesus had told them. Okay, well, Jesus, I'm this super awesome Christian and I'll never fall away because my pride is on the line. Sounds like famous last words. Peter habitually takes his focus off Christ. Remember when Jesus walked on the water? We read in Matthew 14, Jesus was moving along, and Peter calls out to Jesus, when Jesus is already on, walking on the water at this point, Jesus, tell me to come out if it's you. Jesus says, come. So Peter starts walking on the water. Peter is focused on Christ, and he is defying what this world says is impossible. But then Peter takes his focus off Christ, and he starts looking at what's around him. When he does that, he starts to sink. In Luke 9, Peter, James, and John are with Christ during the transfiguration. This is where Christ was transfigured into his heavenly glory, and Moses and Elijah are present in all their splendor. How awesome would it have been to have been there, been there for that? This would be like seeing Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and Billy Graham all in their resurrected bodies all at once. I mean, what an awesome experience. I mean, that would be cool. Peter thought so as well. He says, it is good for us to be here. Peter wanted then to build monuments for each one of them. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Monuments are built so that we can remember and recall how things were. Peter was so focused on the experience that he didn't want it to end. He wanted to make it last. He wanted what was to always be. 
Now this feels like Christianity. This is what it's supposed to feel like. He wanted to have a, so if he ever wanted to have a similar experience, all he had to do was go back to that space and make sure everything was in his place as it should be in his mind. He wanted it to be as it always should be that way. He got caught up in the moment and he took his eyes off Christ. Well, Peter was still speaking out of turn again. They were enveloped in a cloud. This was kind of like a holy hush up from heaven. And then they heard God's voice. And what did God's voice say? What did God's voice do? He brought the focus back to Christ. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When Christ washed the disciples' feet, this was a picture of what Christ was going to do on the cross. And Peter speaks out of turn again. First it's, ah, uh, don't wash my feet. And then it's like, well, if I need to get my feet washed, you might as well wash the rest of my body. Peter again was taking his focus off Christ and putting it on himself. In Mark 8, Christ predicts his death as Savior. He will have to suffer and die and then rise again on the third day. Peter, in this case, Peter rebukes Christ. Now, we're not told exactly what Peter says, but Peter believes that Christ is the Messiah that God has sent, but this was not a part of what Peter thought the plan should be. A suffering Savior? What's wrong with this picture? Okay. I can imagine Peter saying things like, Jesus, you must be mistaken. You're supposed to be an earthly savior, and we're supposed to be right there at your side. Again, we're not told what is said, but we are told what follows. Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have, the things, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter took his eyes off Christ and put them elsewhere. Peter wanted to make the Messiah how he saw best. Peter took his eyes off Christ and he put the focus on himself and he put his, the focus on the world. In John 18, Jesus and the disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas is going to betray Jesus and the soldiers are coming to arrest Christ. What does Peter do? He takes out his sword and hacks a guy's ear off. Christ rebukes Peter again. Are you sensing a theme here? After this, Peter denies Christ three times, just as Christ said he would. What was at stake for Peter when he denied Christ? Was his life at risk? Was he going to be harmed? Was he going to lose out the next promotion at work? No. Peter's focus was on Peter again. At least one of the times when he denied Christ, it was a young girl that just asked if he was one of Christ's disciples. What did he have to fear from her? Remember when I said we should put ourselves in Peter's place? And I said, if you can't identify with Peter, don't worry, I got you covered. Again, as our scripture says, all the other disciples are going to fall away. All the other disciples fell away. When we fall away, this is where Satan wants us. He wants us to take our eyes off Christ and have them on everything else but Christ. When our focus is not on Christ, we become ineffective. After Christ died, what did Peter do? He went back to fishing for fish instead of fishing for men. In verses 29 through 31, words like fall away and disown are used here. Is Peter's salvation being called into question? What if instead of three denials, it was 300 or 3,000? What, what, what would it matter then? Is there a magic number that if you deny Christ so many times, you're no longer saved? Peter's salvation is not being called into question here. In Matthew 16, Peter tells Jesus that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter believes this. 
We read Jesus' words in John's 28, uh, excuse me, John's 10, 28 through 30. It reads, again, Jesus' words here, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. These are Christ's words. Earlier we established that when Christ says something, we can completely trust him. Why would we not trust him here? I love it when scripture uses definitive words such as all or no one. Well, we've covered all. It says, but, but the definitive no one is used here by Christ. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. There are not any exceptions to these statements. When someone is saved, they cannot lose their salvation. In the men's book study on Wednesday night, we've been going uh, through First and Second Peter. It's been wonderful. So men, if you, you're um, looking for something to do on Wednesday night, I encourage you to join us. Um, as we read in these chapters, Peter learns from his own errors, and God directs him to give us further help. In 2 Peter chapter 1, 3-9, it reads, His divine power has given us everything we need for life, and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. It all comes from God. And it's not by our effort. It's by His divine power. It's His very great and precious promises. Verse 5, For this reason make every effort. Again, not our effort. Again, this effort comes from God. Add to your faith goodness, and goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness love. These build on each other. You cannot have one without the previous one. We cannot have love without brotherly kindness. We cannot have brotherly kindness without godliness. We cannot have godliness without perseverance. We cannot have perseverance without self-control. We cannot have self-control without knowledge. We can, excuse me, we cannot have knowledge without goodness, and we cannot have goodness without faith, which comes from God. It has nothing to do with us, and it has everything to do with Christ. In verse 8, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, so our focus is on Christ. And Christ is going to do the work here, not us. Christ is going to build into us these awesome qualities that will help us prevent us from being ineffective and unproductive. When we are effective, when we are productive, this is where Satan does not want us to be. When we are focused on Christ, we are in a place that makes Satan upset. I'm very okay with that. Verse 9. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. If someone is nearsighted or blind to the things of Christ or has forgotten, their focus is not on Christ. It does not say they lose their salvation. It says that they have just forgotten. I suggest, again, starting with me, if we find ourselves in this position, we should ask God to help us to keep our eyes on Christ. Our last point, our hope. After the miraculous catch, Peter and Jesus are having this conversation. To sum it up, Peter, or Jesus asked Peter a few times, do you love me? 
which Peter replies, of course I love you. It is through this conversation with Christ's help that Peter is now focused back on Christ. Well, how do we know he's really focused back on Christ? Well, let's read Peter 2, 1, 12 through 21. Okay, again, Peter's writing here. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now, uh, that you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent of this body, because I know that soon I will put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will make every effort to see that the things, excuse me, I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Peter wants us to continually to remember the things of Christ. All the stuff that we have just talked about, that we've gone over, even though if we're firmly established in the truth, as it references in verse 12, Peter says we need to be reminded of them. We need to stay focused on Christ. Verse 16, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we were told about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were an eyewitness to his majesty. Peter is saying, I was there. I saw Christ. This is a firsthand account. Verse 17, for to receive honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, With him I am well pleased. This is when Jesus was baptized. Peter was there. Verse 18. We ourselves heard the voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. This is the transfiguration. You see how Peter's focus has changed from building monuments and experiences and the way things used to be to the voice that he heard? And that voice brought the focus back to Christ. Verse 19, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you would do well to pay attention to it, as light shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Peter's saying, we need to listen to the Bible, even when our personal views conflict with Scripture. Peter is learning by keeping his focus on Christ. He is learning from his past errors, his past mistakes. Again, with his focus on Christ, we can see the change that is brought about in Peter. And again, it's not the change that Peter did by Peter's effort. It's the change that Christ is constantly doing in him. It is Christ constantly working in Peter. And again, verse 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by a prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible comes from God. The focus is Him. Our hope is in Christ and the salvation that He freely gives us. With this help, we need to stay focused on Christ. As I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon, my wife and I, we moved into our house about a year and a half ago. The same day that we closed on our house, our son was admitted to the NICU in Duluth. And the next day, we were supposed to move into our house. The task was to move all our stuff. It had to get done. That was the task. We couldn't do anything about it. But guess what? By God's love and God's grace, an army of people showed up and accomplished that task. And it had nothing to do with us. 
Salvation is the same way. It is accomplished by God. It is accomplished by Christ. It has nothing to do with us. Our focus needs to be on Christ. Our hope is in Christ. In a minute here, I'm going to pray and close. But uh, um, I'll come up, they'll sing a song, and after that you'll be dismissed. Um, But if you have any questions about God, about Christ, or about the message today, um, I'll be up front here and you can feel free to talk to me. Lord Father God, again, we, we come before you. Lord, things in life are hard. We take our focus off you. We put it on ourselves. We put it on the things around us. We put it on our personal views. We put it on even things that we might deem good. But it's not on you, Lord Father, and it needs to be. Lord, starting again with myself, would you help me? And would you help all of us to maintain our focus on you? Would you help all of us to keep you at the forefront as you should be? We thank you and we love you. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.